Welcome back to the Lydia McGrew channel. I've just finished a short series on whether Luke invents speeches in Acts. I hope you'll watch those. And I've decided to follow that up with a series on Jesus' uh, discourses and also his sayings, his spoken words, and how they're reported in the Gospel of John. This is an even more, if possible, controversial thing to claim that John did not invent Jesus' sayings or his speeches, his discourses in his gospel. <clears throat> now, I deal with this at great length in the eye of the beholder. I just want to hold this up and show it to you. Um, it's got a great cover photo, but it's also, of course, available in Kindle. So for even more detail on this, get hold of the eye of the beholder. But I'm going to be using some of the material from there in this series that I'm going to do. Um, the claim that Jesus sounds so different in the Gospel of John from the way that he sounds in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, has a lot of credence within the New Testament scholarly world. And then there's a question of what you think the implications are of that. Um, but it's very often used to argue that John, in essence, invented things. Now, sometimes this is hidden or disguised by a misleading use of the word paraphrase. So, at the risk of repeating myself, I'll just say something again here that I've said in many other places. It is not my position that the gospel authors always recorded everybody's words verbatim as if they had a tape recorder going. There probably are some verbatim sayings and sections and so forth, um, but it's not my position that that was their goal, that everything they recorded that Jesus said is literally word for word. It, it couldn't be, for one thing, if he was speaking in some other language. They had to translate uh, to Greek, but the point is, that people will strawman my position by saying that I don't believe in paraphrase in the Gospels. That is, that is incorrect. But I use the concept of paraphrase in a way that my audience will understand. So if you invent a saying like, before Abraham was I am, <clears throat> if John invented that based on completely different things, like when he said, um, I have power to forgive sins. You should know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins. Rise up and walk in the Gospel of John. Completely different words, completely different setting, completely different location. For John to be inspired by that, shall we say, to create a saying for Jesus where he literally says, before Abraham was, I am, uh, is not paraphrased. That's invention. And indeed, it would involve the invention of a scene, too, because there's a dialogue that leads up to it, and then after he says it, they try to stone him. So I use the word paraphrase for places where the content would have been recognizable had you been present and had you understood the relevant languages, and the context would have been recognizable if you'd been present and if you'd understood the relevant languages. Without that recognizability, the term paraphrase can mean pretty much whatever someone wants it to mean. It becomes more or less meaningless. Um, but, of course, you can have wording variations and so forth, such as uh, we get in truthful witness testimony all the time. So I want to correct that, that straw man going into here. 
within that boundary of recognizable context and recognizable content, did John report truthfully what Jesus said on particular occasions in a way that would be recognizable? It's often argued that he didn't. And an argument that is used is the assertion that Jesus sounds so different. So I'm going to do a a series where I talk about different responses to that. Occasionally I'll have people who will email me or message me and they'll say, how can I evaluate things in a way that disagrees with scholars because I'm not a scholar? Well, that's exactly what I'm trying to help you do in things like my books and my videos because what I'm giving you is I'm giving you arguments that are made by the scholars and then I'm evaluating them. And if I disagree, I'm saying why I disagree. And I think if you dig in, you'll be able to see that you can evaluate that. It's not just a black box. Well, scholars say this or this other scholar says that, and I'm going to go eeny, meeny, miny, mo and decide which group to agree with. That's not a good way to draw conclusions. There's nothing so heavily technical that you can't follow these arguments. I also want to mention that I have um, quite a number of really high-profile endorsements to the eye of the beholder. I don't usually bring that up, but if you've been given the impression that my work on the Gospels, because I'm going up against scholarly consensus, is just the work of a crank who's, uh, you know, considered of no value by any scholars of any uh, merit, that's that's just simply not true. Um, I have endorsements here from Pierre Constant, Thomas Schreiner, you may have heard of, Craig Blomberg, Stanley Porter, Paul Anderson, Peter Williams, um, you know, these are Randy Leedy, um, C. John Collins. Okay, um, so there are there are endorsements here from scholars who are are known to be good New Testament scholars, and in some cases even uh, even good Johannine scholars. Um, William Weinrich, Edward W. Clink, known as Mickey Clink. Um, so, and I was in fact invited to the Evangelical Theological Society's invitation-only Johannine literature section to present, and did go last November and presented on this very issue of uh, the reportage of Jesus' spoken words in John. So, if that's important to you, it's good to know that, and I'll provide a link to my endorsements in this video. What I'm going to do in this particular video is to talk about the direct counter-evidence, some of the direct counter-evidence to this claim that Jesus sounds so different in John. I have quite a number of pages uh, of these comparisons between what Jesus says in John and what Jesus says in the synoptics in the eye of the beholder. I'm only going to be able to give you some of it. Um, And what's interesting is none of the examples I give you today is even going to be what's known as the Johannine thunderbolt. That one is uh, found in Matthew and Luke in what's known as Q material. And you can you can Google it, you can look it up. Um, and, and I'm deliberately not including it today, even though it is very significant, because sometimes that'll get acknowledged as a kind of throwaway. When I did a debate uh, in 2018 with um, Craig Evans 
he acknowledged that few verses called the Yoanine Thunderbolt. And then he said, but that's the only place. He said, there's nothing except for a few verses in Matthew in the synoptics that sounds like Jesus in John. Now, to begin with, there's a question of how, you know, how did that even get in there if it's supposed to be the the language of this, you know, Yoanine community or whatever that wasn't even around writing Matthew. Um, it's more of a concession than it appears to be. But um, it's not true that there are only those few verses, and so I'm not even going to give that one today. There's a lot more to be said, and that's why we're doing a series, but I'm going to start out with these comparisons of places where Jesus says very similar things conceptually and sometimes even in language, even linguistically, but in different contexts in uh, the synoptics and in John. And sometimes he says the same thing on multiple occasions in the synoptics and then again in John, showing that this is the way his mind worked. I want to caution you against what I call hedge John loses, tails John loses. I've talked about this before, Um, which is, it goes like this. If the scholar doesn't see enough that he expects where Jesus sounds similar in John and the synoptics. He'll say, see, John must be significantly altering the way that Jesus talked because we don't find any place where uh, Jesus sounds like that in the synoptics. But then if you point out a place where Jesus does sound similar in John and the synoptics, scholars will say, ah, see, John is taking that synoptic tradition and he's moving it and, and uh, writing as if Jesus said it in a completely different context. You see how that works? It's heads John loses, tails John loses. Instead of acknowledging that these are these are both faithful representations of the way that Jesus spoke and thought on multiple occasions. This is the way his mind worked, and this is the kind of thing he talked about. Um, that apparently that theory isn't on the table. Uh, it's always some degree of invention on the part of John, and that's that's not legitimate. If the supposed absence of uh, similarity in how Jesus talks is supposed to be evidence against John's historicity, then when we find similarity, that should be evidence for John's historicity. All right, here we go. Matthew 7, 7 from the Sermon on the Mount. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Compare. John 16, 24, farewell discourse, the Last Supper. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Four conceptually similar statements on prayer. Compare Mark 11, 24, John 14, 13 through 14, and John 15, 7. And this saying is especially noteworthy because of that verbal similarity. Ask and it will be given. Ask and you will receive. Again, no reason to think that John moved it from some other time. That's just the kind of thing Jesus was was teaching them. All right. Next, uh, raising of Jairus's daughter. They've come and said, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the master. Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Mark 5, 36. Um, Then also Mark 9, 23, speaking to the father of a demoniac boy, all things are possible to him that believes. Um, So speaking in other words to the relative of a person who is afflicted or who is dead and asking that person to believe on Jesus. All right, compare in John uh, 11, 
25 to 26, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he says to Martha, do you believe this? She says, I believe that you're the Christ. So she's not necessarily convinced that Jesus is going to raise her brother. That's his decision. But she believes on him that he's the Christ. And then when they go to the grave, she kind of questions Jesus' order to open it. She says, by this time, he's stinking. Uh, and Jesus said to her, John eleven forty, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So again, this challenge to the relatives to believe. All right, next. Uh, Mark 5, 39 to 40, again, raising of Jairus' daughter. Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And the people laugh at Jesus. So he's using death uh, and sleep together. He's using the metaphor of sleep for death. And he's using it in a comforting way. And that's interesting. The Old Testament, we find, I believe it's in Daniel, a reference to the just sleeping and uh, rising up or, you know, sleeping in death. But um, the use here is apparently intended to convey some kind of comfort and notion of it as being temporary. Similarly, John 11, 11 through 12, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. So again, he's misunderstood. And it's this um, metaphor that Jesus is using. This was apparently picked up by the early church because we find it uh, repeatedly in the Pauline epistles, the use of sleep as a euphemism for death. Okay. Uh, this next one is very interesting. Matthew 10, 24 to 25. This is the commissioning discourse to the disciples. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So this is with reference to, <clears throat> to persecution. And so he's saying to be prepared for them to speak ill of, of them as his followers because a servant is not above his master. Now compare, we find John indicating on in two different places in the farewell discourse, Jesus using the same saying. Again, there's no reason to think Jesus didn't repeat himself. And John has two of them right in his own gospel. All right, spoken concerning the foot washing. John 13, 16, very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And so he's saying that he's given them an example in, in washing their feet and they should follow his example because the servant is not above the master. Later, John 15, 20, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Now, it's interesting when he says, remember what I told you, he might be referring to his having said that right there on that same night. That's possible. But I want to suggest, I'm not going to die on a hill for it, but suggest that it's also entirely possible and even plausible that when he says, remember what I told you, he might be referring to the different occasion Matthew in Matthew 10. And the reason I suggest this is because um, in both of those places, it's with reference to persecution and rejection. 
Um, and the very fact that Jesus says, remember what I told you, shows that Jesus himself is aware that he repeats himself at times. All right, here we go. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's also in the commissioning discourse in Matthew, Matthew 10, 37 to 39. But right in the synoptics, we find Jesus saying something similar on a different occasion. This different occasion is reported in Matthew 16, 24 to 25, with a parallel in Mark 8, 34 to 35. Um, it's when he's foretelling his own death prior to his final trip to Jerusalem, not the same setting as uh, the Matthew 10. Still synoptics. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Okay, so right there, the synoptics themselves indicate that Jesus repeated this concept of whoever loses his life will find it. Many years ago, I went to a live concert in the 80s when I was very young with a singer named Ken Miedema, and he had a little dog roll that he sung. I don't think he put it on any of his uh, any of his recordings or albums or anything, but it was, and the words have just stuck with me. Finding leads to losing, losing lets you find. Living leads to dying, life leaves death behind. Losing leads to finding, all that I can say. No one will find life another way. And um, he recognized that that was a theme of Jesus's. And we find that it is a theme of Jesus's because in John 12, 23 through 26, yet a third different setting. This is in Jerusalem during Passion Week. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That last bit about the Father honoring him is similar to Matthew 10:32. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. There's no reason whatsoever to think that Jesus didn't also say these things on this occasion. This is the way his mind worked. This was a major theme of his. Losing leads to finding. Finding leads to losing. If you, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. And if you are willing to lose your life for him, you will find it. Um, so Jesus talking similarly in the Gospels across, you know, Matthew, Mark, and John. All right, I'm just going to do one more. Matthew 11:28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is just after the Yohanin thunderbolt I was mentioning. I don't believe it's generally considered part of it. Now compare, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. If anyone, and Matthew, or excuse me, that's John 6, 35 and 37, and John 7, 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. So that, that invitation, come unto me, come unto me, come unto me and I will give you rest. Come unto me and I will feed you. Come unto me and I will give you to drink. That again is, it's the way Jesus talked. Okay, so I have, I have stopped. I have just stopped. There are more of these in the eye of the beholder. Okay, 
So, and I, I talk about some of these issues also in an article that was uh, published, a uh, peer-reviewed article in the journal Conspectus that I'll try to link below. We're just getting started, and I'll be dealing with other alleged arguments that uh, Jesus just sounds so different in the Synoptics and in John. But I wanted to start by challenging that straight up. Does he really sound so different? Oh, that's been overplayed. That's been exaggerated. And we found here just some of the counterexamples to that claim that he sounds so different. So keep coming back to hear more uh, of addressing this argument that Jesus sounds so different and that that means that John is less historical than the synoptics. Thanks for watching.